0: And it's time for a third period with Brother Rodney. Our theme verse today comes from Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 20, where we read, Then answered I them, and this is the I being Nehemiah, and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. Our subject today deals with the building of the walls of Jerusalem. The temple had been completed for many years at this point, for approximately 60 years. And the leaders of the first wave of returning captives, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, Zechariah and Haggai, had passed from the scene. And we find that a lot has changed. While the temple is still in operation, the people have not set their minds to restore the walls which surround Jerusalem. And so the Almighty prepared two men to lead two further waves of captives back to Jerusalem and to reform the Jews back to Yahweh their God. And these two men were Ezra and Nehemiah. If we review again the time frames we're talking about here, we know that the rebuilding of the temple again was done in the time of Zerubbabel. He was the the uh, Tershatha or the governor, and then um, we have Jeshua being the high priest. After the temple is finished, there's quite a bit of time here. You can see roughly five sixteen BC to. 457 BC during the time when Ezra comes forth for his work, which we'll talk about. Um, interjected in the middle, and of course, depending on which historian you look at, the time periods may shift a bit, but we have Esther being made queen. So we're still in this period of time when great grace has been shown to the people of Israel. So we have Esther sitting as the queen, uh, on the throne there uh, in Persia, in Shushan the palace. And now we have two men coming forth, Ezra and Nehemiah. And again, you can see there is an, a bit of time here between those two uh, men as they come, again, leading forth different groups of people, as we, as we will talk about. And again, to show a comparison here, we talked yesterday about the rebuilding of the, of the house of Yahweh, the temple. And we have ruler or, uh, ruler, priests and prophets, or you might say prophet, priests and kings, um, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and of course Haggai and Zechariah. And we spoke yesterday about what an important role it was that, that the Lord sent not only the priests and the ruler, but also prophets. For they were the ones that encouraged the people and motivated them and had them encouraged in the work of actually completing this house towards God. And then today we'll talk about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, where again the Lord prepared uh, men in certain roles, Nehemiah, Ezra, and then the prophet during this time was Malachi. And we uh, probably won't get too much into Malachi today. So just as far as getting our our time period set... And also, for those who are interested in the the meanings of the names, Ezra means Yahweh helps, and we can see how Ezra fulfills this role in helping his people to return them back to Yahweh their God, Nehemiah is Yah comforts, and then finally Malachi being my messenger. So we can keep those things in mind as we proceed. Ezra led the second wave of captives back into the land. Our first introduction to the man is in Ezra chapter 7 and provides a detail of his genealogy. And it's quite an impressive genealogy. And we'd like to turn over to Ezra chapter 7. And just again to note here, the time period between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7 is about 60 years or so. And so there's um, the time periods aren't conveyed in the scriptures directly. But, you know, as as you look through them and compare them, you can determine this. Ezra 7. Now, after these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Saria, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Hi- a lot excuse me, a high tub. The son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Meraiah, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzzai, the son of Buki, the son of Abishui, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. We have here in this genealogy some of the most dedicated men in the service of the Lord in regards to the priesthood. We have Aaron, we have Phinehas, who we know demonstrated a very righteous zeal towards the Almighty, and we have Zadok, who served righteously under the under King David. There are several verses here in the seventh chapter which sum up the purpose and the character of Ezra. We'd like to read, first of all, from Ezra 7, verse 6, which is our next verse. This Ezra went up from Babylon And he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. So we read here that Ezra was a ready scribe. This word ready has several meanings. It's rendered diligent, ready, quick, and hasty. So there was no delay in his actions. He was very diligent to go about the work which he was ascribed to do. And if we'd like to compare this word in a couple other verses, we can turn to Isaiah 16, verse 5. And this is uh, speaking of our Lord Isaiah sixteen verse five, and in mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth, in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. So this is this uh, this word that that is rendered um, a ready scribe here. It's a hasting judge, excuse me, hasting righteousness. Again, going forth and pursuing righteousness without delay. Let's turn back to Ezra, chapter 7. Ezra, chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. So again, this aspect of to do it. This is what Ezra was geared to do. He was dedicated and he was diligent in his work towards the Almighty. I think this is a characteristic which we all need to, of course, strive for. For for Ezra was motivated and enlivened by the law of his Lord. And as such, traveled this long journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. And it's of note, as we read back in the sixth verse, that Ezra made this request of the king. So he had an association with the king, much as Nehemiah did. So there was uh, perhaps a bit of nobility or at least a bit of... um, he, He had an elevated position among his people that he could commune with the king and make this request that he could go forth again to serve the Lord his God. Prior to leaving Babylon, he demonstrated tremendous faith by putting protection, the protection of himself and his companions in the hands of the Almighty and chose not to have the king provide an escort to Jerusalem. And this is something we want to keep in mind as we compare him to Nehemiah. Well, let's turn to Ezra chapter 8. And let's read verses 21 through 23. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahaba, that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen To help us against the enemy in the way. Because we had spoken unto the king saying, the hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. But his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. Ezra's demonstration of faith was even more impressive given the fact that these returning captives were carrying millions of dollars worth of gold, silver, copper, and other precious items, as recorded later on here in Ezra chapter 8. True to Ezra's character, he took special precautions for this journey, and this is what we just read. They afflicted themselves, and they besought the Lord their God, and of course the Lord entreated them. So immediately before he left, Ezra's faith was tested. Would he ask the king for protection when he knew that the Lord could provide that protection? Next, we would like to consider our introduction to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is described as having two primary occupations, which is denoted and which are typical of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was first a cupbearer, and secondly, a governor. At the end of the first chapter, Nehemiah records that I was the king's cupbearer. According to Holman's Bible Dictionary, a cupbearer was a high-ranking official in the courts of ancient Near East kings. The cupbearer was often taken into the king's confidence and had no small influence on the king's decisions. And the other cupbearer in the scriptures which comes to mind is that of the cupbearer of Pharaoh, who was, of course, thrown in prison during the time of Joseph. And he was restored to a position such that he could tell uh, the Pharaoh about this man, this Hebrew who could interpret dreams. This description of a cupbearer fits that of our Lord Jesus Christ, who truly bore the cup before his king, the king of Israel, our God. The symbol of the cup is so predominant in the life of Christ that it has become synonymous with his service. We can turn very quickly over to Matthew 26, verse 42. Very familiar to us. Matthew 26, verse 42 This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Do we not remember our Lord each Sunday through the cup of remembrance, the cup which is the New Testament in his blood? Perhaps because this position of cupbearer is foreign in today's culture, we may minimize the role as being one of insignificant service. But since the world began, no greater service has been performed before our Heavenly Father than the true, before our Heavenly Father, the true King, than that of bearing that cup of pain in obedience to the duties of the, in, in the excuse me, in obedience to the duties of the righteous cupbearer. Nehemiah's genealogy also provides us a connection with the cup of wine. Unlike Ezra's genealogy, which we read, Nehemiah's ancestry is not backed to a particular tribe, although we can perhaps, as we go along, take an educated guess. He is mentioned only as being Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, this word hakalaya is interesting. It's composed of two words. The second, the, is of course, yah. And the first part, the, the heckle part is defined as this by Strong's. It means, meaning to be dark, darkly flashing, only of the eyes, in a good sense, brilliant, as stimulated by wine, red. So this bright flashing of the eye stimulated by wine is indicated in this part of this and um, Strong's actually renders the two together as being the darkness of Yah. Or, but again, this is in a... It's kind of a... You have this brilliance a darkly flashing which is perhaps uh, contrary but um, hopefully we'll, it'll become a little more clear as we go along. This word here, uh, hackle as I pronounce it, um, is only mentioned once in the scriptures. And this is in Genesis 49. And we'll turn back to this passage. Genesis 49, verses 10 through 12. In Genesis 49, of course, we know this is where Jacob uh, gives prophecies concerning the the latter ends and many things which will happen to the various tribes of Israel. And this particular section uh, falls in line with that of the tribe of Judah, which again, being in the role of governor, we would submit that perhaps uh, Nehemiah was from the tribe of Judah. So if we read verses 10 through 12, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be binding his foal unto the vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. And in verse 12 there, regarding his eyes being red, this word red is this word here, uh, hakliel, There are several ideas which can be relayed through the wording of this verse. In Elpis Israel, Brother Thomas suggests, from a natural sense, that the descendants of Judah would inherit a land overflowing with the blessings of the vine and of milk. And we think of a land flowing with milk and honey. And this idea of being darkly flashing also brings other passages to mind, both of the cherubim and of the future manifestation of the Son of God. We can look at a few references along these lines. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And this is again speaking of the cherubim. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, and like the appearance of lamps, it went up and down among the living creatures, and the fire was and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. So again this aspect of power and of going forth is darkly flashing which is kind of something we would envision to be part of this uh, cherubim image. And again if we turn over to Revelation chapter 2 verses 13 and 14. Revelation 2 verses 13 and 14. Excuse me, Revelation 1, verses 13 and 14. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks or lampstands, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. So again, this flashing eyes, the power... To go forth and to execute judgment upon the nations and upon those who oppose the Almighty. So we think that these, this is part of the implications of this verse and this word. We would also like to draw attention to the brilliance as described here in the definition, which would come through the stimulation of wine. This is not drunkenness. Instead, it is an enlivening which can be developed through the partaking of wine. So we must ask ourselves the question, does our partaking of the cup of wine on each Sunday morning enliven us in the truth? Do we find ourselves strengthened each first day of the week through partaking of this cup, which represents the blood of our Savior? It is important to note that the children of Israel are not the only ones who can be guilty of losing their perspective Concerning a token of God's service. And we spoke earlier this week about the Ark of the Covenant and how they ascribe to that Ark certain qualities that it could save us as opposed to seeing the greater symbolism behind it. Within our day, we are not encumbered with the various aspects of the law. We do not have a physical altar or an Ark which can be seen to be used in our service to the Almighty. The only real tokens we have are the bread and the wine, which are emblems which represent the blood and body of our Lord. We generally recognize that the Israelites in Old Testament times who wished to be heirs of salvation of the everlasting promises were required to see in their sacrifices the greater future role of the sacrifice of our Redeemer, Jesus the Messiah. As we meet each first day of the week, we too must recognize in the partaking of the emblems this great sacrifice. And we ask ourselves, are our our eyes enlivened as we partake of this wine? Are we strengthened? Does it motivate us each time that we partake? And this is something that we need to really examine ourselves concerning this. Having examined the role of cupbearer, we will review Nehemiah's work as governor in a few minutes. As we go through the scriptures regarding Nehemiah, I would like for you to notice the character of Nehemiah and the manner in which he conducts his affairs. I would suggest to you that the portrait of the scriptures, the, the portrait which the scriptures paint of Nehemiah, bears a striking resemblance to the character of the man Jesus of Nazareth. There are many men in scriptures which are typical of our Lord through some aspect of their lives. For instance, we might look at Joseph as being a type of Christ in the way he saved his brethren, or we might look at David's rule as king and his conquering of the surrounding nations as being typical of the initial phases of Christ's rule in his kingdom. And certainly, Nehemiah falls into this category. But what we would like to notice about Nehemiah is how he conducts his business and how he reacts to the people around him. He exhibits an incredible zeal in the work of God. He stands up and challenges opposition, whether it comes from external sources or from his own people. In no manner whatsoever does he allow sin to continue Once it is uncovered, he identifies a problem and deals with it immediately. And in doing so, he is no respecter of persons. So whether it's someone related to the high priest or one of the Samaritans or what have you, he is always willing to stand up and and identify himself with the right cause. If you read any commentaries regarding the life of Nehemiah, you will find two qualities attributed to him. First, Nehemiah was a man of prayer. And second, Nehemiah was a man of action. Nehemiah is one of those rare men and women who the scriptures have no words of condemnation for them. He is zealous of good works. He is never deceived by the works of unrighteousness. He is never timid to confront any error. He exemplifies true leadership with a godly spirit. Let's begin examining his record. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, we'll read the first four verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, and it came to pass in the month Chislu in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Henanai, one of my brethren, came; he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me either near or actually in the palace, his heart was with his brethren in Jerusalem. It was his chiefest joy. He sought out news concerning this remnant who had returned. Certainly now, 60 years after the temple had been completed, the walls of Jerusalem would have also been completed. Certainly the work of Ezra, who had come before him to reform the people, would have been accomplished. And yet, much to Nehemiah's dismay, they were not. The walls were broken, and the gates were burned with fire. Nehemiah is so overcome with grief that he weeps and mourns for certain days. He could have rejoiced that he was in a nice, safe place with a good, stable job. Presumably, the palace and his closeness to the king afforded him many luxuries. He could have shaken his head and condemned his distant brethren for not knowing or for not knowing their God or working on the walls of Jerusalem. But no, his soul is in great anguish at the knowledge of their distress. So in line with his character, he prays. We would like to read his prayer, which is the balance of the chapter. Beginning uh, Nehemiah 1 verse 5. And said, I beseech thee, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes be open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night. For the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we... "...have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations." But if you will turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet I will gather them from thence and will bring them into the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, Let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant, and to the prayer of thy servants, who desire to fear thy name and prosper. Excuse me, and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah's prayer indicates how closely he associated himself with his kinsmen. He he could have prayed much like the Pharisee did in Christ's day. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or, in Nehemiah's case, even like these Jews in Jerusalem. Yet Nehemiah's prayer included many uses of the pronoun we. We have sinned against thee. We have dealt very corruptly. It is, in fact, the only condemnation you will find in the scriptures concerning Nehemiah are the confessions of his own lips. He was not righteous in his own eyes, but instead was humble and contrite in his own prayers. By the last words of this prayer, it would seem apparent that Nehemiah had already conceived a plan to help his brethren in need. For he asked the Almighty to grant him mercy in the sight of the King. The expression of faith attributed to Moses in the Book of Hebrews is also appropriate to Nehemiah, for he chose rather to suffer the affliction, to, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to joy, enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. We would like to highlight a few verses in the next chapter. Which records Nehemiah's interactions with the king. And we know, of course, that Nehemiah goes forth, and the king notes in his character this great sadness which he which he has, and of course to note figures out that it is due to this uh, problem. He says, And I said unto the king, If I please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by, and that was perhaps Esther, although we're not certain, for how long shall thy journey be, and when shalt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and to set him a time. Moreover, I said unto him, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river that they may convey me over until I come to Judah. And the letter to unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace which pertaineth to the house and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. The king granted his petition, and we should, we would like to note here again that whereas, whereas Ezra traveled without any protection we find that Nehemiah is afforded a great escort of captains and horsemen to accompany him on his journey. Let's read verse 10. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. There are several enemies which predominantly figure in the account of Nehemiah, we have Samballot, the Horonite, which was a a Moabite. We have Tobiah, an Ammonite, and we have Jeshem, an Arabian. Now why were these so exceedingly grieved at the appearance of Nehemiah? We'll talk about that tomorrow. But certainly in their minds, they did not want the Jews to reach a position where they would have any stability in their own land. Nehemiah then comes into the land, and he slips out into the night to view the landscape and to start making his plans. In Nehemiah chapter 2, we would like to read verses 12 through 17. So I arose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, and to the dung port, and, viewing, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain, and to the king's pool. But there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did, neither had I yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more of reproach. We have been viewing the events which took place in the life of Nehemiah, which brought him to the point of building the walls of Jerusalem. We would like to go back and review some of these verses again in these first two chapters and try to identify them as aspects which are typical of our Lord Jesus Christ. We first find that we see a cupbearer who serves in the presence of the king and we've already shown how Christ bore that cup before the king of Israel the Lord Almighty This cupbearer became very aware that his brethren were in great strife, and that the city of Jerusalem was in great disrepair. In the latter day, will this be from the northern invader, from the surrounding nations? The cupbearer then is granted his petition from the king that he can go forth to become the governor of Judah. This governor arrives at Jerusalem with a great hosts, with captains and with horsemen to relieve the distress of the people. The surrounding nations object to the very presence of someone coming to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. He comes on his beast with men and at night, in a manner unknown to his sleeping brethren, and begins to set his plans to deliver his people from their oppressors. Finally, with the dawning of the new day, he reveals himself to all. The walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt. Jerusalem no longer lies in waste. And the people of God, his kinsmen, will no longer be a reproach. Is there any question who this writer is upon this beast, who comes as a deliverer? Let's turn to Revelation 19 and look at verses 11 through 16. Revelation 19, beginning at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him was called Faithful and True, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he should rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There can be no mistake as to who this man will be. He is our Lord triumphant in his victories over the nations, with his eyes flashing as a flame of fire. Jerusalem will indeed be built again, a city of refuge, a city of hope, a city of peace. Will the nations, particularly Israel's Arab neighbors, be glad and rejoice that one has sought to return to see the welfare of the children of Israel? Certainly not but they will be be forced to submit to the words which our Lord will speak. Let's turn back to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Jeshem the Arabian heard it, They laughed us to scorn and despised us, saying, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem." There is only one people in this world that can make any claim to the city of Jerusalem. There is only one people who have portion and right and memorial in this city. If we look at the definition of these three words, portion, an allotment, an inheritance, a share, a right, a legal claim, a legal ability to possess, and a memorial a right or a historic right. So we know today that the, the Arab nations have what they have. They believe they have a claim. They have these ideas of the right of return, the right for Palestinians to come back in the land. They have the big mosques uh, and the mosque, the, the Dome of the Rock sitting there on Temple Mount. That they believe is their memorial. But we know that when the Lord comes, he will say these words to them, as all this abomination is wiped off of that city of Jerusalem, that they have no portion, no right, and no memorial in that city anymore. Let's turn to Isaiah 65 and read verses 17 through 19. Isaiah 65 17 through 19. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem, a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people, And the voice of weeping shall be heard no more in her, nor the voice of crying. So this is the final end, which we will see in Jerusalem. There will not come to mind any of these other claims upon this city, which are now in existence. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3 outlines the workers who strive to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. We will not cover this chapter, but we would like to note what a great commendation it must be to be recorded in the Holy Scriptures as a permanent record for the work which they performed in rebuilding Jerusalem such that it could be defended from her neighbors around her. Nehemiah chapter 4 begins with the reproach of the enemies on the work of the builders. We would like to read Nehemiah's response to this reproach. Nehemiah 4, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O our God, for we are despised, and turn their reproach upon their own head, and give them for prey in the land of captivity. And cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have provoked thee to anger before the builders." And this, we believe, will be the fate of those nations which oppose Israel today. Their sins will not be blotted out in the last day, but they will incur upon themselves all that they have uh, deserved in provoking the Lord to wrath. Due to the sake of time, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. But this chapter records the building of these walls of Jerusalem. And we know that this was done in very perilous times. These, uh, the Samballot, Tobiah, and the others sought to oppress the children of Israel as they went about performing this work of building. And I will note at this point, we'd like to read a couple verses regarding how Nehemiah organized these people in order to actually complete the work. We like to read in Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning at verse uh, 16. And it came to pass from that time forth that the half of thy servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held the spears, the shields and the bows and the havergians, and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. They that build it on the wall, and they that bear burdens, with those that laden every one with one of his, excuse me. And they that bear the burdens, with those that laid it, every one with one of his hands, wrought in the work, and with the other hand held a weapon. For the builders, every one had a sword girded by his side, and so built it, and he that sounded a trumpet, Was by me. Because of the opposition of their adversaries, those working on the walls of Jerusalem were instructed to both build the wall and to defend from their enemies. We too must carry the sword of the Spirit to defend spiritual Jerusalem from all its adversaries. But we must be careful to maintain a balance between the activities of building and defending. We cannot forsake the building of our wall. We must continue in our personal growth, growth in the truth just as Nehemiah led the people to complete the construction of the wall. The greater or higher we develop our spiritual relationship to the Almighty and His Son, the lower the chances are that we can be overcome by our enemies. So as we go about our work in the truth, it's important that we keep in mind that we take time to do both. We have to defend the truth from error, both internally and externally. But we also need to make sure that we take the time to build ourselves up, or we will not be able, in the end, to defeat the enemy and to hold them back. We'd like to move ahead to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6 records the attempts by Sanballat and Tobiah and others to pull Nehemiah away from this work which he had to do, from this great work of building the temple. And we do not have the time to cover this in detail, but we would like to cover Nehemiah's three responses which he gives to the people. There are three methods in which the, the uh, these um, people around them tried to pull Nehemiah away from the work. The first of which was through deception. The second of which was through lies. And the third of which was through fear. If we look in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 3, here is Nehemiah's response to the deception of Sambalat. Nehemiah 6, verse 3, And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? This should be our response to the world around us. We must recognize the great work which we have to do. And this great work doesn't have to be the building of a wall. It could be the simple task of fixing a meal for, for someone in the ecclesia or going forth and uttering a kind word or doing our daily Bible readings. All these things really are great works, but it has to be recognized that these things must be done and that they cannot be ignored. We cannot let sin, as uh, represented here by Sam Ballat, this deception which he has, draw us away from the great works which we need to do. The second thing which... The people in particular Sam Ballat tried to do is they tried to put up a false report of treason against Nehemiah, saying that they were going to report to the king that Nehemiah was building the walls of Jerusalem so that he could forsake his king and set up his own kingdom. And in this, Nehemiah has an equally important response. We'd like to read verses eight and nine of Nehemiah 6. Then I sent unto him, saying, There are no such things done as thou sayest, but thou feignest them out of thine own heart. For they all made us afraid, saying, Their hand shall be weakened from the work that it be not done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. So, first of all, we have this recognition of sin and lies. So we have to understand that we, we have to recognize this. And secondly, we have to offer our prayers to God that we be strengthened in our work in the ecclesia and in our personal lives. And finally, we have again a deception where they try to scare Nehemiah. They try to say, well, you had better hide in the temple. And of course they were hoping to in the process, uh, go out and slay him. And let's read verse 11. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 11. And I said, Should such a man as I flee, and who is there that, being as I am, should go in the temple to save his life, I will not go in. And lo, I perceived that God had not sent him, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me, for Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. So here again we have Nehemiah recognizing his position that he had a duty to serve, that he had a duty and an obligation to follow after the ways of his God and that he would do it. He would not back down through fear or through any other method. He would stand up to the work. We're going to conclude there for the day.